Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we discuss the latest and greatest in Canadian politics with Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University, and it's Municipal Election Day across the province. Here in Hamilton, we're going to see a lot of new faces on council. Who's going to end up on top? Well, we'll discuss that. And we cover all things in American politics with Reggie Cicchini for this weekly report from Washington. All coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Our leaders up in Ottawa are having quite a time with it right now with uh, what's happening with the uh, Emergencies Commission and uh, some of the testimony that we're hearing. Uh, the public commission now is uh, going to resume public hearings later on today with uh, interim Ottawa Police Chief Steve Bell expected to testify. By the way, there's a story to that, too. Emily Jovesky has details for us. Steve Bell was deputy chief when the Freedom Convoy protests swept Ottawa in late January. He's been the city's interim chief ever since Peter Slowly resigned in mid-February. Bell previously said he did not ask the federal government to invoke the Emergencies Act. Slowly is also expected to testify this week before the commission, which is looking into whether Ottawa was justified in invoking the act. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press. Some uh, conflicting testimonies about that that we're going to talk about in just a couple of minutes. Uh, and lots more going on, of course, up in Ottawa. And to uh, cover all that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Uh, Dr. Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration uh, for Dalhousie University. Laurie, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today and a very busy day right across Ontario. Hey, Bill. It is. Nice to talk to you. Uh, listen, we mentioned that uh, Interim Chief Bell is going to testify today, so we're told. Uh, but there's a story there, too. Uh, he uh, is no longer, well, I guess he's the interim chief until the other guy gets sworn in. But mm-hmm. uh, I, the Police Services Board up in Ottawa has actually selected a new chief, uh, which is highly unusual just a couple of days before a municipal election. And uh, what, what's the feedback in, in the capital about that? Yeah, there's a sense that this is not, you know, this is not exactly best practice when it comes to making appointments. And so, um, yes, today today is our municipal election day across Ontario, as we know, and uh, both two of the candidates, at least two that I know of in in Ottawa, have raised issues. Uh, Bob Shirelli has written a letter, and Catherine McKinney has also raised issues with the timing of an of the appointment, because obviously, you know, not only are we going into an election today, which kind of makes the timing of the appointment a little weird but also given everything that's going on with the commission and how much the the public trust in the ottawa police was affected by everything that happened with the convoy and you know there's it's just such a critical time anyway and so now the appointment has has taken you know it'll take effect in november but we know who the person is and there's a sense that um you know not only is the timing inappropriate but also that the person uh, the 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 person who made the appointment or who was who was at the head of that is a Mark Sutcliffe supporter, and so yep. there's a political element to it too. Yeah, and and I'm sure people are aware of the process. It's the Police Services Board that actually hires the chief, uh, and as you say, the the chair of that board is is not running for re-election, uh, but it is supporting one of the mayoral candidates, and uh, it kind of sounds a little like okay, well, why did you rush this appointment then? I mean, the the rationale for this I thought was rather interesting. They said, well, you know, we we wanted to get somebody in there, you know, because it always takes a while for a new administration to get their feet. Well, that's part of their job uh, mm-hmm. for the new administration to make that determination. So I, I'm just interested in the pushback on that uh, before, uh, well, soon to be chief, I guess, Eric Stubbs uh, is finally sworn in there. But uh, <laughs> they were talking about transparency and everything else, and then something like this comes along, and it kind of undermines that whole idea but yes. we'll see how that yeah. plays out in the days ahead uh, now about the testimony uh you know 
as you say, Interim Chief Bell is going to be talking today. Some of the comments I've heard over the last couple of days during the testimony, Laurie, seem to indicate that local police uh, seem to be setting a tone here. There's a commonality through a lot of the testimony that, hey, we had no idea this was going to be as big as it was. We didn't think there were any, uh, you know, bad characters in here. We're just a bunch of Canadians who were going to be upset about something. Uh, my, we've heard evidence to the contrary, too, that said there, there was intelligence that said uh, some people from some rather shaky and shady uh, enterprises were part of this convoy, uh, if not entirely part of the convoy. Uh, and uh, I know Minister Mendocino was on the hotline, uh, the hot seat about this the other day, because he's the one who made those assertions. What, can you weed through this and tell us exactly what is going on and what their mindset was? It's true. There is, I mean, at this point, we're still in the early stages of the commission and we'll hear more witnesses as this goes on. But there seems to be, like we're seeing the the reality of different perspectives in terms of what happened. And so the local police have this, have one lens or, you know, and, and actually even among them, different lenses. But uh, there's a sense of what what it was like to be on the ground and have this thing start to build momentum and it become clearly much larger than anybody had anticipated. And then for some people at different different orders of government, you know, kind of have this sense that some of these people we have been watching for a while, there actually is a significant threat here. And that's why some people were concerned about this turning into the kind of emergency that would be far, like much, much more difficult to deal with because there were people like, I mean, I've read reports of some testimony. People are saying there was radicalization. There was extremism. These, you know, many of these people were known to law enforcement already, that kind of thing. And so you're seeing different narratives emerge. And there's also, it seems to me to be a bit of a difference between, and we could have anticipated this, the political narratives versus the law enforcement narratives, like the law enforcement being very much focused on here are the critical steps. Here's how things change day to day. This is what we were dealing with versus the political narrative. A lot of which is this was an emergency and we needed to respond. And so then you go back to that question about whether the Emergencies Act was really necessary, because that's the point of the commission overall. And so you've got these conflicting back and forth, some people saying, oh, God, we would not have been able to deal with any of this if it weren't for the Emergencies Act. Everything changed once we could we could press that button. And then other people saying, no, no, like we would have landed in the same place without it. And so that's, you know, what I guess what the, the judge is going to have to wade through. Well, and that's one of the questions I think that keeps coming up time and time again, as you mentioned, with some conflicting testimony, uh, is if we didn't need the act, uh, why did it take so long to do anything? Because we've heard stories that there was no master plan. Uh, they didn't really know what they were doing. They weren't even ticketing a lot of these people. And there's, I, I guess, a line of thought among some people that are watching this, uh, essentially, Laura, that if the police had done their job from day one, maybe they didn't need the act, but they didn't. And and you know, so, and as you say, there's, there's going to be a lot of information here that the judge is going to have to go through before they make the determination. Uh, but uh, the, the testimony from the acting chief, and I guess later on uh, with uh, the ex-chief, uh, I think is going to be yeah. a, a key element in, in at least giving some push, some perspective on this. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think, yeah, I think uh, Slowly's testimony will come later in the week. But absolutely. I mean, I think the, the thing with an emergency, any emergency, is that um, you kind of roll with this principle of capacity. So the local government responds first until they are overwhelmed, right? It's until it's beyond their capacity. Then you kick up to the provincial. And then if they get overwhelmed too, then you kick up to the federal. Sometimes, like, especially if it's an emergency, like a natural disaster of some kind, it becomes clear right away. 
a local government doesn't have the capacity, right? Like you would know right off the bat, okay, this thing is a flood or whatever, and you're going to need all kinds of support from different orders of government. But this, this one was different in that it was kind of political in nature from the get-go. This wasn't a naturally occurring disaster kind of thing, right? Like these are people who decided they were going to go to Ottawa and disrupt. And so the nature of the disruption, how severe it was, whether local officials could respond in, in enough of a way or whether they needed other help, that was, I think, you know, as we say now, an evolving situation and one that is highly politically loaded. And so now we're seeing that, the sort of like, what what do you do if different orders of government are actually not filling the capacity they have, then what decision, you know, at what point do other orders step in? And so it's going to be tough, I think. Like, I think the report that comes out at the end is going to be very nuanced. It's not going to be black and white. Yes, the government's good or bad. It's going to be, nah, there were extenuating circumstances. Yeah, it's, uh, and, and, you know, the appointment of the new police chief in Ottawa is, well, the timing is interesting on this too, because clearly what they've done is set up a scenario here where when this report comes out, and I'm sure it's going to be damning to a certain extent about police, can just say, yeah, well, that those guys are gone. Uh, we got a new guy in charge. So uh, we'll, we'll let that play out. Uh, the interesting weekend up in Ottawa. It's always interesting in Ottawa, especially <laughs> this time of year. Uh, but the, uh, the the annual dinner, of course, the, uh, the the press dinner, the press gallery dinner, uh, which hasn't been held for a while because of pandemic, etc., uh, was held this past weekend. Uh, Pierre Pauly of the opposition leader, the conservative leader, opted not to show up, but uh, that didn't stop people from talking about him, even though he they weren't talking to him. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can remember, like, I've gone to it a couple of times, and I can remember seeing Andrew Scheer there, like, you know, maybe five, six years ago. But, like, they they did seem to develop among the conservatives a sense that this is a kind of elite exercise and not something they want to be seen to be endorsing or participating in. And so Sheer caught some hell, I think, from a few MPs about, like, what are you doing? Why are you fraternizing at this, like, rich person party? And so then I think there's some sense in the conservatives that they don't want to do this. Harper didn't go, I don't think. Um, but I think for them, too, they're also dealing with what Pierre Polyev's relationship is with the media. I don't think Pierre Polyev wants to hang out with journalists for the day or the night. I think that a lot of his approach to selling himself and building his brand has been direct communication with voters and potential supporters. And so his YouTube videos and things like that, like he's kind of bypassed the media as much as he possibly can, if you ask me. And so, no, he probably doesn't want to go have dinner with him. It's just not where he wants to be. Well, because there's supposed to be at least a, a, the sense of a bipartisan evening. I, mm -hmm. I think that's what they're shooting for. And it, it doesn't really work out that way. But, I mean, you know, they they came, supposed to be good-natured jabs at each other, uh, not as acerbic as they usually are in question period and things of that nature. But uh, you're absolutely right. Polyev clearly doesn't like the media and, and doesn't want to deal with the media. So why would he hang out with the media? Uh, he's pretty much painted a picture that the, the media are the bad guys. You know, they're the ones that distort his message. So yeah. I, I can understand where he's coming from. Uh, but it, it, I think what it does, it... it it sends a message also that, you know, those days where, you know, conservatives, Republican, you know, the states, they have a similar dinner, of course, the White House press corps. Uh, yeah. And it's supposed to be, as you say, everybody kind of hangs out and has fun and then they get back and hate each other on Monday morning. Uh, but that vitriol is, is there all the time now. And I think it influences just about everything. And certainly I think influenced uh, his decision to do this. You know, you don't like the other team and, and I'm not going to hang out with the other team. And it, I think it speaks to the to the character of politics these days. Bill, I think you've nailed it. He sees the media as another team, not as 
you know, an important democratic institution in the country whose role is to bring objective political news and other news to like he doesn't, you know, and provide that challenge function, provide that accountability function. He seems not to see that he puts the media in a category as being a team with an agenda. And so, you know, it's kind of like, why would I go and participate in that? I think it's, it's, I think it's a problem. Like, I think, I think the fact that he seems again, as you say, to see this as just politics as, as, you know, he never kind of takes that hat off. He never, he doesn't seem to have an off button where he says, okay, like, you know, tonight is just about a fun night and go and gather with colleagues. Why not see it as a night with colleagues as opposed to someplace where he's going to be attacked or, you know, it's, I, I don't know. Anyway, it's, his choice, obviously, but I think, and it's, it's something that most people have, have probably have no idea whatsoever that's even going on, right? But it's it doesn't get the kind of press that the White House one does. But it's still an opportunity for them to be cordial and to build some personal relationships that can help you get through the miserable times in the House of Commons. And to the extent that politicians back away from that, it's unfortunate. Well, yeah, and and look at it. We're not talking about open mic night at uh, at Yuck Yucks or anything like that. I mean, because these guys are telling jokes, and and most of them are not very good, and these guys aren't very good at delivering at them anyway. Uh, although I did think Trudeau's line about you know if you want to poly have to attend, he should have just said you were occupying the building, and he would have shown up with donuts. I thought that Trudeau's was kind got of his weird. moments. That's for sure. Yeah. So, <laughs> but but and and some people. I mean, you know, when Obama was president in the states, I mean, he he rocked it at the White House dinners. Yeah. But that, that's a guy that knows how to deliver a speech and a line and everything else, and not everybody does. But it's also, I think, a chance to show these the, the, for the politicians to show that hey, I'm human too. You know, I'm not just oh, this yeah. this talking head that just seeing question period, and and I think it was a missed opportunity for Polyev, but you know, it is what it is, I suppose. Speaking of which, got a minute or so left. Uh, the liberals are making noises right now that they want the Speaker of the House to investigate the, uh, the those hidden tags on the Polyev YouTube uh, videos that we talked about the other day. Is that going to go anywhere? I'm not sure if it is or not, but I think the point they want to make is to make this stick to him. Right. For anybody who didn't notice, like they want him to be, you know, wearing this sign of this is something you did. You are, you know, you you are playing a political game where you are willing to court the opinions of people that are hostile and, you know, dangerous just because this is how much it means to you to get votes together so that you can win. So I think what they're trying to do is like now they're seeing the same polls that everybody else is seeing and the polls aren't consistent, but many of them are showing that in fact, Polyev is having a kind of upswing. Now that people know he's the leader, they're having a look at him. I think some people didn't bother tuning in until he actually won, but now that he has, I think people are just kind of having a look at what he's got to offer. You can see him building support, Jigmeet Singh losing it. So kind of like in the UK and other places where we're seeing that, you know, kind of working class vote move from what was traditionally a Labour Party to now what is it is some representation of a Conservative Party. And so there's something, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on here. And I think the Liberals are trying to respond to that by making some of these kind of unseemly things stick to Polyev. Interesting week. Uh, anyway, I, always fun to watch the assessment of that. And there's lots more testimony going on with the inquiry, too. Uh, Laurie, thank you so much for this. Happy Election Day. And uh, we'll oh, talk you next too. week, I'm sure. Take care. Take care. Bye. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University up in the nation's capital. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Election Day here in the province of Ontario. Uh, You've got till uh, 8 o'clock tonight to vote and uh, take a few minutes and uh, be part of the democratic process here. Uh, The race in Hamilton has been rather interesting uh, for a whole lot of reasons. Uh, the mayoral race, of course, especially because, well, there's uh, no incumbent. Uh, Fred Eisenberger decided not to run for re-election, and uh, it's an open seat. And uh, it's it's been an interesting race. 
A uh, number of people, of course, have registered to, to run in the mayor's position. Uh, the consensus seems to be uh, the top three being uh, Andrea Horvath, Keenan Loomis, and Bob Bertina. Uh, here's a little montage of uh, what some of those uh, mayoral hopefuls had to say over the last couple of weeks of the campaign. What I'm hearing from people everywhere I go, all kinds of different people, is a real concern about the cost of housing. Working on bringing truth, trust, and transparency back to City Hall. My message is getting out the way I'm hearing back from people and that they they accept my message. Uh those are the three main contenders for this. And uh, as we said, we'll uh, have the election coverage actually starting at 6 o'clock tonight. Scott Riley will be broadcasting from Hamilton City Hall. And then uh, we'll pick up the ball at 8 o'clock. And uh, that's when the polls close. And uh, some of the uh, results will be pouring in. Municipal elections pretty good about uh, getting the vote out there as quickly as possible, too. Uh, joining us uh, later on tonight, too, to give uh, his perspective on this will be John Best. John, of course, is the publisher of the Bay Observer. And he joins us right now. Uh, to give us a, an assessment on what he's heard and seen so far. John, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us again this morning. Good to be with you, Bill. Uh, notwithstanding some of the comments from from the, some of the mayoral candidates here, but they want to be transparent and, and, and you know, have a clean race, et cetera. Uh, it got a little testy in the last couple of weeks of this campaign, didn't it? Oh, it certainly did. Uh, r- really, right from the beginning, uh, there was, uh, you know, when Keenan Loomis was out of the gate first and... Uh, you know, he's had a very energetic campaign, uh, and and he made it very clear that uh, that he wanted to be, uh, uh, you know, the the change candidate, and and uh, he, you know, he was fairly disparaging, I think, of uh, of his two opponents in terms of uh, you know using phrases like recycled politicians and so on. Um, I wrote an article on that where I made the point that. Uh, running for mayor of Hamilton is perhaps uh, the the only job where uh, experience is, uh, is a deficit or a, a negative. Um, you know, there's no other job I can think of where having no experience puts you uh, is an advantage, but uh, that's the way it's, uh, the narrative has gone in Hamilton. It's surprisingly, and, and others, before uh, Keenan Loomis ran this time around, I mean, there are others that have been saying, I'm an outsider, you know, that I'm, I'm the one that should be there. And, and I, I get that attitude because, let's face it, uh, there seems to be a common thread here that a lot of people just don't like politicians and they don't trust politicians. And if they pass a, a bylaw or something that they don't like, that well, they hate them even more. So if you've got a track record, yeah, you, you're going to have some problems trying to defend that track record. But that's that's the game, isn't it? It really is, and uh, and I'm certainly not uh, suggesting that uh, you know we don't need change. We we do need change, and and given the number of vacancies, uh, both on council and and with the open mayoralty race, we're going to get change. Uh, it'll be interesting to see who fills these slots, and uh, you know. So I I think a, a balanced council is one where you have uh, a good number of of new faces, but also uh, a, a decent number of, of people with experience who can, uh, you know, in some ways uh, be a little bit of a, provide some mentorship uh, to to the new members. Because a lot of the things that are being promised by both mayoralty and uh, council candidates are absolutely impossible to deliver uh, under, under our structure. Um, the one thing we do have control over is policing. And so uh, when Bertina talks about adding more police, that's something the police services board can do, but attacking affordability uh, of housing, 
that's a national problem and it's going to require all three levels of government. Certainly the, the municipality can play a role, but the reality is that uh, it's already been announced last week that uh, municipalities might as well shut down their planning departments because the province is taking that over. Um, the builders will be able, you know, maybe just go to a, an automated vending machine now to get their, their building permits because it's very clear that uh, planning uh, is going to be significantly weakened at the municipal level. So, well, and I've we'll, seen that. I mean, from my time on council some years ago, but I mean, even talking to councillors that have served over the last little while, uh, I was always the, the the nine and a half years I was on council. I was always on the planning committee, and I, I enjoyed that work because it's it's basically determining how the city is going to grow and where it's going to grow. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Uh, part of that process was always a public meeting, at least one, uh, where the neighborhood would have an opportunity to weigh in on this. Hey, I think it's a bad idea, good idea, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's pretty much going to be right off the table now. I mean, you can wake up one morning and find out they're building a, tri a, tri a duplex or a triplex right across the road from you, and there's not a whole lot you can do about it. Exactly, uh, and and it's gonna it's gonna be an interesting change. Uh, uh, now, uh, people will argue that going right back to the old Ontario Municipal Board, that even that body uh, always had a bit of a, a developer uh, tilt to it. But certainly uh, now it's gone through all these name iterations, but the, this Ontario Land Tribunal and, and the statements from the Minister Clark uh, last week uh, clearly indicate that, uh, you know, NIMBY is simply going to be uh, ruled out of order and uh, we're, we're going to see a different complexion uh, to our cities in the, in the next uh, coming, you know, decade, I suppose. Uh, you're, you are going to see more multiple housing in, in neighborhoods where it's pretty much all single family. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll just see what that translates into in terms of how the voters react. Well, they'll react by calling their counselor and say, what's going on here? And, and their hands are going to be tied in a lot of these situations. It's going to be interesting to see how that happens. You, you talked about campaign promises, though, John, and, and at the risk of sounding overly cynical, uh, especially in this campaign, I've noticed, not just in the mayor's race, but even the, the, the council races as well. Uh, invariably, this boils down to councillors or candidates, I guess, in this particular case, telling people what they want to hear, as opposed to uh, some viable alternatives, like you say. I mean, I don't know anybody that's ever run for public office that says, you know, I want to, I want to get your taxes down. Well, you actually have very little control over that these days, too. I mean, you know, that nobody wants to admit that when they're running for office, but uh, once you're faced with that reality, uh, a tax decrease is is something everybody would like to hear, and. The reality of it happening, of course, is, well, two out chances, I guess, slim and none, uh, given the, the situation and the financial situation, this and just about every other city in Ontario is facing. I think it's going to be a shock to some of the new councillors, especially those who are focused on identity politics. Uh, the municipal level is not really the best place to practice uh, that, that kind of social uh, warfare. Uh, you're better to run for the federal parliament where you can get up and talk about Palestine or intersectionality or whatever you want, nobody cares. At the municipal level, you're really a caretaker in, in many ways. You certainly can have influence in, in social issues and identity issues, but if you think that's gonna be the main job that you're gonna be doing, um, you're gonna be in for a disappointment and possibly uh, a one term uh, on council. So, you know, the, the job has got a lot of nuts and bolts to it. 
And the first thing they're going to face, this new council, is this whopping almost 7% increase that uh, Mike Zagarek, the treasurer, is talking about. And, the, you know, now we always go through this dance every year where it gets whittled down to two, two and a half. But this year, uh, it sounds like some of those tools and capabilities are not going to be there. For one thing, the, the COVID money, the, you know, the windfall COVID money that municipalities got is gone. And it's not going to be renewed. So uh, it's going to be a very challenging year uh, for this new council. Yeah, and uh, it's a, a rather daunting process, and you know, for, for, especially for newcomers, uh, to be faced with this. So the, the the binders and binders of of, uh, of financial statements, etc. And, and I'm not suggesting that them that have done it for a long time are better at it, because sometimes it, it's that's not the case at all. Uh, but it's going to be a rather interesting and a, and a rather, I think, blunt baptism for an awful lot of these uh, new people that are going to be on council. Uh, you know, seven of them, including the mayor's office, of course, are going to be newbies, and uh, I can't think of a time when we've had that much of a, a turnover on a council. I mean, 1997, I think uh, there were five new faces on that council out of 16 in the old city uh, back in those days, the eight wards. Uh, but this is going to be, a, well, seven at least. And we're, I guess when we say that number, John, we're, we're pretty much assuming that the incumbents that are running are probably going to get reelected. Yes, and and uh, I think uh, some of them are going to have very tight races. So so the number of new faces could be greater than than seven. I think the other thing, when you have a, a council with a lot of new faces, and I don't want to draw a, a false uh, conflict here between staff and, and the councillors, but uh, the more new faces you have, uh, the easier it is for staff to do stuff, um, you know, <laughs> without uh, being perhaps challenged. And, and, and we have a situation now, Bill, with the, uh, with the Red Hill uh, inquiry, which which a number of, you know, people rather foolishly, I think, want to blame on council. What I take away from that Red Hill inquiry is is how council was manipulated, how they were ignored, uh, how they were kept in the dark, and and that's just one one issue. Are, are there other issues uh, where where council is is handled, if you will, in in such a way? So. You know, there's uh, it's it's going to be, you know, the more new faces you have, the more likelihood something like that can happen because you don't have some of the older watchdog types who, who know where the, you know, where where the skeletons are buried. Let me ask you about that, because uh, you're right. There's going to be a very sharp learning curve for the newcomers, including whoever is going to be the mayor. Uh, you know, there are some people there with political experience running for that job, but none of them have been the, well, one's been the mayor before, but uh, sure. we'll see what's going to happen after that. Uh, but what about that relationship between staff and, and council? It was rather acrimonious for a long time. Uh, some of the councillors who made it so are not running for re-election this time around. So does, does that mean there will be peace in the Valley? Well, there, there may be peace. I mean, we've had, you know, the last term, uh, other than, uh, you know, the one councillor who, who will go nameless at this point because uh, he's not running. Um, but most of the, uh, I, I think, the tone and the decorum of council was, was relatively uh, polite. Uh, there was uh, nowhere near the crosstalk we used to see uh, for years and years, and certainly when on your time on council, Bill, it was a pretty wild and woolly place. Um, but, uh, you know, I think behind the scenes, uh, there's, a, there's a concern that, uh, that maybe the pendulum towards politeness has swung too far. And, uh, 
you know, there has to be a balance between, um, you know, proper oversight, a rigorous oversight, and and uh, just letting the inmates run the the zoo. So it's going to be it's going to be challenging, I think. Uh, email here at bkelly900chml.com from Alexa says, uh, I, for one, don't want to see the top job go to somebody with zero experience in any elected position and whose experience does not equip him or her to appreciate the demands of the job. I've never understood why one of the mayoral candidates didn't first cut his chops in a council position, learn how to get things done before trying to run the whole place. I don't want a mayor who needs to learn uh, not only about being head of council in a, or a mayor in a huge city, but we'll learn about relationship with uh, other levels of government. That's a rather long note here from Alexa. Basically, I think you got an idea who she's not going to vote for in a situation like that. But it Haven't raises a clue. Uh, <laughs> but it raises an interesting point here, John. And I mentioned this in my commentary on CHML earlier this morning. You know, we've always said, well, the mayor really, when it comes down to it, is just one vote on council for now. But you know, Premier Ford indicated uh, last week in a, a speech he was making. Uh, that he's going to extend these strong mayor powers uh, about a year from now, and Hamilton's on that list. Uh, so who, whomever takes that job over uh, is going to assume those powers, uh, and that means they can hire and fire staff, uh, except for chiefs of police and things of that nature, But and they're going to control the budget that's going to be presented to council too. That There's a lot of responsibility there, uh, and I think people have to keep that in mind. I mean, you know, who we're electing right now uh, is going to be – all of a sudden be, be you know, the, the recipient of all of this. And uh, it can be overwhelming for a veteran mayor for a lot, for a lot, for a lot of us. But uh, it's, it's, I guess, something we have to keep in mind as voters right now is who can handle this and who's going to be able to use those powers and not be overwhelmed by them. Well, uh, they're definitely going to put bullets in the gun uh, of, yeah. of some of these mayors. And, uh, you know, some, some will use their powers wisely and, and some not wisely. I mean, we've already seen in in Brampton where uh, where Patrick Brown is running for re-election. He's in trouble uh, because even without the strong mayor powers, he he got a bunch of cronies from that were totally discredited in Niagara and gave them all key positions in uh, in Brampton. And these are people that were written up by. Uh, the St. Catherine Standard, a tremendous scandal ab about how they were all sort of feathering each other's nests and there was a, a cabal and why Patrick Brown transferred all of those discredited people to uh, to his municipality is is beyond me, but he's, it, it's causing him some real pain. He's, he's facing a council that has basically been in revolt uh, with him for the last couple of years. So add to that strong mayor powers uh, you know, I, I, I see mischief if, if somebody doesn't have the character to, to use those powers wisely. Well, yeah, I mean, there can be people that just aren't up to the job and they're going to be overwhelmed by that. And as you say, there, there's always the possibility. And I'm not suggesting any of the candidates would do this because, uh, you know, time will tell how things are going to go. But you can abuse it. You can use that or abuse that power. And uh, it's something that I think we have to keep in mind. Uh, you know, you know there, there are people right now working at City Hall in the administration, you know, in, in various departments, managers of various departments. There's the city manager. Uh, according to what the, the, the legislation that the premier is talking about right now, uh, a year from now here in Hamilton, and, and certainly right after this election in places like Toronto and Ottawa, uh, the, the mayor can hire and fire those people. Uh, and, you know, just say, I don't like you, you're gone. I want to put my person in there like Patrick Brown did in Brampton. Uh, and, and you have to be concerned about that too. I mean, I, 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 you know, you mentioned how could a guy like Brown do that? Uh, because he could, 
Uh, and sometimes that's what politicians do, and that's why they do it, because they can. They want their people there so they can move their agenda forward. And I think we need to be wary of that. Yeah, and, and in that case, I think it also suggests either a weak council or a council that wasn't paying attention. And, uh, you know, because uh, anybody that, that was reading a Southern Ontario newspaper knew that some of those people that, that he hired were had had been in trouble in Niagara. So um, anyway, that's uh, that's another municipality. But I think it's an illustration of if you get the wrong kind of people wielding the, uh, too much power uh, and, and lack of oversight that uh, you, you can get some uh, some real problems. So and we'll get into this in further detail, of course, later on tonight after the polls close and we'll start looking at some of the results here. Uh, are any of the incumbents that are running, are, are any of them in trouble? Well, I'm I'm hearing that the race in in Ward 13 with Arlene Vanderbeek is is getting close. Um, if you look at signs, uh, you wonder about Ward Three, where uh, Walter Furlan is is running against Narendra Nan, and it, it certainly looks like it's it's a it's going to be an interesting race. Uh, uh, mind you, signs don't vote, but if you look at the signs, I mean, he's got a ton of signs up all all over the place, so. At least the people that own those properties are, are probably going to vote for him. Um, not sure about uh, what's happening in Stony Creek. Both uh, races, uh, there there seems to be some uh, some challenges underway. Uh, Maria Pearson is is facing the same two people she ran against last time, and maybe that's good for her in the sense that maybe the two opponents will will split the vote and she'll get in. Uh, but you know, there's there's some some real spirited races uh, involving incumbents, and that's something that we haven't seen in a long, long time. Yeah, and I mean, notwithstanding the comments of one of the mayoral candidates that you know, it's, it, you know we don't want recycled politicians. Uh, I think you may see them, and there's you know, a former mayor of Flamborough is running for that council seat, Ted McMeekin, who was in provincial politics for the longest time. Uh, I've heard that he's got a pretty good shot at that. Uh, Scott well, Lavelle. Go ahead. He's, yeah, he was he was the mayor of, of Flamborough. He's very well known out there, uh, even though he ended up living in Dundas. But yeah, I, I think he's got a good shot. Uh, Keenan Loomis wants to make him housing czar. Uh, that's another area where we will find out very quickly that that's a council decision, and uh, you know so. But I think you're right. I, th I think Ted is uh, certainly the best known of of the candidates in in yeah. that group and. Um, and for some reason, even though he's had more time in elective office than either Bob Rutina or Andrea Horvath, somehow he's escaping the recycled politician moniker. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, interesting. Uh, you know, Mr. Loomis doesn't like recycled politicians, but I guess he likes that one. So we'll, we'll see what happens with that. And, and let's just say you're going to have to draw a line at some point about what council can do and what the mayor can do. It's going to be an interesting night, John. Look forward to uh, joining you at uh, 8 o'clock tonight, and uh, we'll have a discussion, an in-depth discussion about who's going to be making those decisions. But thanks so much for this today. You bet, Bill. John Best, uh, publisher of the Bay Observer. Uh, and uh, we'll have, as I say, in-depth coverage starting at 6 o'clock tonight here on CHML. Polls close at 8, and then we'll count them up for you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Things are, are starting to heat up in Washington uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, one of them, of course, being the midterm elections, which are uh, not too far away. Uh, and the other, of course, is because uh, things are starting to wrap up uh, in, in one area, uh, there's an awful lot of pressure on, for instance, the January 6th committee 
uh, to wrap up their business. And, uh, well, the question a lot of people are asking, is Donald Trump going to testify there? Uh, to talk about that and uh, many other things going on in the U.S. Capitol, so pleased to welcome back to the program Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Reggie, thank you for, so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Good morning. Right. I guess the big question is, as like I said, it's like the clock is ticking here on this January 6th committee. Uh, Liz Cheney, one of the co-chairs, of course, uh, is, is not going to be on, in, there anymore after a period of time. Is there a, a feeling, Reggie, that these guys can wrap up the work that needs to be done here b- before this election, which is not that far away? Uh, I don't know if it's going to be fully wrapped up before the election, but uh, a report is due be- before the new Congress is sworn in yeah. on January 3rd. So while the clock is ticking down, they do have a little bit more time in front of them. I think the bigger question is, what are they going to get from the former president potentially before the election? Um, when the subpoena was handed out uh, last week, you know, in the hours after Steve Bannon was uh, was sentenced to prison, uh, they expected and told uh, the former president that November 4th was the deadline on or around uh, to have documents submitted to them and then November 14th for any kind of testimony. So if they hear, when they hear, should they hear from the former president, that won't happen until after the election. But to be able to start getting information from him before the election could at least help them out uh, a little bit here, again, because they are really looking at um, a dwindling amount of time. Uh, the, the subpoena, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, can he ignore it? I mean, he can ignore it. Uh, and there is some history for the January 6th committee of having their subpoenas ignored. But there is also now a precedent of consequences for what happens if you ignore that subpoena. And those consequences were played out in real time in the hours before the subpoena was handed out when Steve Bannon was sentenced to four months in jail for ignoring a subpoena. Uh, so, and again, I mean, it's not unlike Trump to try to rag the puck here and just kind of delay, delay, delay. That seems to be one of his strategies. Uh, but is there a sense in, of inevitability here that at some point they're going to get him down there? And and I guess that at this stage, do they even know what kind of a deposition it would be? Would it be uh, pre-recorded like some of the testimony has been or would he actually be appearing before a committee? Well, I mean, look, uh, Representative Cheney was on uh, on one of the Sunday shows uh, on on NBC yesterday and made a, a very clear point of saying that she expects that Donald Trump is going to supply, uh, rather going to uh, comply with the uh, subpoena. But she made it very clear that she's not going to allow Donald Trump to simply steer and take control of everything and, you know, create a quote unquote circus in that if Donald Trump, when Donald Trump, again, should Donald Trump testify, that it's going to be done behind a closed door. It will be done possibly, you know, over video via WebEx or something like that, uh, but that he's not going to have the live stage that he potentially would want because, A, that would give him an opportunity to kind of create a spectacle here. But even in Trump's own eyes and possibly through his own lawyer's eyes, they may see that if he goes on TV, if he does this live, he puts himself in a better opportunity to potentially perjure himself uh, by not answering truthfully. And at least in a in a more kind of secluded setting, he'll have a, you know an easier opportunity to speak with his lawyers. But at the end of the day, Liz Cheney does still believe after all this time that there is going to be some kind of testimony from the former president. Well, it's going to be fat. I, I guess the attitude a lot of people are going to have is, "We'll believe it when we actually see it." And and as you say, he may simply try to you know steer the 
the, the his time in front of the committee uh, to his own pleasures and, and to his own uh, agenda, which he's been known to do in the past too. That's uh, that's that's what they call must see TV, I guess. Uh, yeah, when that yeah and, and, and Bill, if I can't just really quickly here, I yeah, mean, just yeah. because the just because the clock is running out here on this committee to be able to move forward, if they opt to file a contempt of Congress charge, if he decides to ignore that subpoena, that's going to land with the DOJ, and then that clock does not stop ticking. So the congressional investigation will be over. But the Justice Department will be able to move forward if a contempt of Congress uh, charge is filed against the former president. So he can try to run the clock out. He could just find himself in uh, more significant legal troubles with the Justice Department. Let's I want to swing over to a, the, the midterms for just a second, and, and maybe even beyond that, Reggie, because you know, let's face it, two years from now is another general election, and that's why the midterms is so important to kind of set the tone and, and see who's going to have the balance of power, of course, in Congress after this. But uh, it's the, the, the presidential situation has been kind of shoved to the side because of what's going on, as you say, with these hearings. Uh, but the, the speculation about whether or not Joe Biden's even going to run again, which some people might assume, well, he's the incumbent. Of course he is. Now, he kind of hinted over the weekend uh, that that he's leaning in that direction right now, but there still seems to be some doubt. Well, I mean, I think the big word to pay attention to here on whether or not Joe Biden is going to run again is that he has the intent to run. And it was just, you know, a couple of weeks, if not a couple of months ago, that he said that, you know, that wasn't something that he was ready to answer yet. And here we have the question now a little more honed in, but still the intent is for him to run. And I think you are not going to get a big answer out of Joe Biden, at least in the run up to the midterms, because we need to see how Democrats are going to fare. Do they take the big loss that some Republicans claim is going to result in this big red wave? Or is it more of a you know less substantial win for Republicans where they don't get as many seats in, say, the House and maybe the Democrats are able to keep the Senate? That could allow for Joe Biden to say, well, look, then, you know, we still have an opportunity here uh, to get things done. Joe Biden also, you know, keenly aware, it's hard to ignore the fact that his uh, favorability numbers are just not uh, where the White House would like them to be right now. So by saying that there's an intent to run, that he might run, it's not a definite yes, it's not uh, an explicit no. It just gives the kind of balance here that, look, we're continuing to move forward and we still have things to do. Also worth pointing out, Bill, he's the oldest president in history. If he runs again, it's not like he's going to get any younger. He is going to remain the oldest president in history. If if the answer is no, and as you say, this, this is a big if. We're getting into the era of speculation here right now. Uh, is Kamala Harris the the heir apparent? Is she since she's the VP? Uh, is is it just assumed that she would be the nominee, or at least be the front runner for the, for that position? Uh, possibly. I mean, look in in the lead up to to any election, you know, there's always a list of people who might be the number one contenders, and the lists that have been kind of circulating, at least amongst you know the the politicos within the media. Um, you know, Kamala Harris is on the top of that list, but so too are the usual names like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Pete Buttigieg. Um, very rarely are there. Uh, names that kind of grace these lists that may be a little bit more on the centrist side of the Democratic Party or even on the lesser heard of side. I think that there will be some, um, you know, push here to potentially have the vice president run should the president decide that he's not going to run. Because, again, there's some precedent making moments there with the first female president as a possibility. 
I do think, though, that you're going to find some people that say, well, look, the vice president also doesn't have great favorability numbers. She's been kind of left aside by the administration after a kind of strong uh, showing at the very beginning of the term. Um, you know, again, it's, it's speculative to think, but she is one of the names that does come up. But it just comes up along with all of those other names that are constantly kind of regurgitated every couple of years. Well, a couple of weeks ago when we brought this up, you were talking about California Governor uh, Newsom as well. Uh, is, is he still a player in this? Of course, he's still a player in this. And I think that there are a number of Democrats who think that they are also still players in this as well because they have name recognition, because they have um, some serious political clout that is below them. So whether you have a Kamala Harris or you have uh, a Gavin Newsom or you have somebody from kind of the middle run up like a Kentucky governor, Andy Bashir, you know, this is going to be the fight that the Democrats have to play with. Um, I think it's going to be less of a kind of confrontational fight that we may have within the Republican Party in 2024. Again, it's all going to kind of um, you know, start to piece itself together after what takes place this November, after where either Republicans find themselves in a position of, hey, this was great, let's try to give this everything we've got, or if Democrats say, we need to refocus on how things are right now, who's going to be the best person to pick up on what could be a kind of very blurry couple of years for us. Uh, on the other side, of course, the Republican side, uh, a voice that we hadn't heard for a while uh, popped up again, uh, former Vice President Mike Pence, uh, who is rumored to be interested in the Republican nomination, uh, basically called out what he called a Republican Russian apologist. And I guess this is very much aligned with the theme of what you've been talking about in your reporting, Reggie, about a number of Republicans. And, and by the way, some of them, a good deal of the commentators on Fox News, have actually been very pro-Russian in their comments and anti-Ukraine. Uh, and, and that's ruffled an awful lot of feathers. It obviously is gaining some traction with some Republican supporters. But uh, for Pence to call them out right now, is, is that an attempt uh, by Pence to try to separate him from the pack? I think it's a, it's an opportunity to separate from the pack, but it's also kind of an opportunity to potentially try and find what is a very hidden reset button on conservatism within the United States. I mean, look, the Republican Party was not always the Republican Party of right now. It was um, a party of of, um, of of lesser government involvement, of kind of uh, family morals, uh, and and you know. When we hear the vice president, the former vice president talking about bringing America back to, you know, the kind of glory of the Ronald Reagan days, there are fewer and fewer uh, members of the Republican Party who still see uh, conservatism in the United States the way that someone like Mike Pence sees it or the way that someone like uh, Representative Liz Cheney sees it. But he is still trying to show that there is uh, a voice. It may be a little muffled right now within the Republican Party uh, that it does not need to be the way uh, that it is right now. I mean, in that speech to the Heritage Foundation, which is an incredibly conservative foundation in the United States, he made a point without using names of talking about voices within the Republican Party that are far too extreme and to the right. And whether he's talking about someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene or the former president or Lauren, Lauren Boebert, um, I think what we heard from the former vice president is we don't need to go that far because if we try to go that far, there could be a breaking point in this party and you end up with a fractured Republican Party that's never able to come up with a strong majority. I think he may be on the minority side of that. I think it's going to be tough for those kind of classic conservatives to bring themselves back up to the, the center of the page here. But this is an opportunity for him to at least begin the you know building a foundation for what he may try to run on. But nothing's going to get sorted out with the Republicans until they find out what Trump's doing or not doing, as the case might be. Uh, you know, DeSantis 
Pence. I mean, there's a number of people, uh, Ted Cruz, I guess, would, would be throwing to that mix too. Uh, but they don't want to step on Trump's toes uh, because the, Trump's still a major force, if not the major force in the Republican Party right now. So they're, they're, they're campaigning, but they're not really campaigning. No. And, and again, they're going to wait to see what plays out uh, with the midterms as well. Donald Trump kind of had a 50-50 um, you know, game of, of chance and risk here when it came to who he threw his endorsements behind uh, in the in the lead up to these midterms. And again, how Republicans do could be uh, an indicator of how they're going to perceive a potential, um, you know, Trump presidential bid round two. Uh, you know, they may see him as too toxic based on where the Republican Party sits, or at least on where some of that Republican base sits. And if that's the case, they may have to start finding someone else to go to. And you may start to see verbal fists being thrown between someone like Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis was kind of groomed into that position by the former president. He would then have to try and take the opportunity to say, you were kind of the 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 old news right now. Here's how we're going to move. I think there's going to be a lot of of of, um, of looking at what takes place in this midterm, at least in the suburban parts of the bigger cities, which, you know, they walked away from the Republicans in, in 2016, 2018 and 2020. They're trying to get them back. If those if those suburbs go back to the Republicans, that could you know allow for a new conversation to take place as to here's where the party needs to go, possibly without the former president. But with that in mind, is, is Mike Pence damaged goods, though, because of, of, well, his role in January 6th? I mean, <laughs> hang Pence, you know, we, we saw that. We saw the gallows there. Uh, and an awful lot of Republicans, even in Congress, were very upset that he oversaw the uh, the basic uh, job he was supposed to be doing anyway, which was to validate the election results. Sure. And I think I think that there's going to be um, a, a significant part of the Republican base that will see Mike Pence as a traitor, see someone, uh, see him as somebody who didn't live up to what the, you know, his boss, a.k.a. Donald Trump, uh, wanted him to do. But that's where you're hearing, you know, in that impassioned speech from the former vice president in that that's not what this party is. That's not what this country needs right now. He's trying to say, look, there are jobs that need to be done. There are political ways of going about and doing something. And sure, I might not have flipped an election because I, I just was not allowed to do that. And, you know, he has to try and break through some of the weeds that have been really built up by the kind of... Um, you know, quote unquote, obnoxious side of the far right who believes that, you know, they can simply do whatever they want because Donald Trump said that you can do that. Maybe if Donald Trump is not a part of the race, maybe if there are kind of louder voices like Pence or or Cheney that kind of are able to to cut through some of that noise over the next couple of years, there are opportunities for people to come back and say, OK, we've moved too far to the right. Maybe we need to move more center again. I, I know I'm getting the wave here, but i got to ask you this opinion, because you've been following this story for so long. You you mentioned Liz Cheney a couple of times. Yeah, she didn't win, of course, her primary. So I, I get the sense where we haven't heard the end of her in some way, shape, or form. Some are suggesting she may actually uh, you know, take a run at the presidency as an independent candidate for the nomination. I, I don't know if she's going to go that far, but I, I just can't see her going off into the sunset, Reggie. No, and she's made a point of saying that that she wants to see the Republican Party brought back to where it is. You know, do you run the opportunity here of seeing a, a Mike Pence, Liz Cheney ticket? That is a real opportunity because uh, they are both along the same lines of within uh, what old school classic conservative conservatism was in the United States. So there's a real risk here that she could potentially throw her hat in the ring or potentially side up uh, with somebody like Mike Pence. I don't think that this is going to be um, you know, the silencing curtain down on Liz Cheney. It may be on her immediate public 
um, you know, political career because she's no longer going to be in Congress. But I don't think that's going to kind of stop her from being able to speak. And I think that if she does run, whether she is a candidate or uh, on a ticket with another candidate, and then you have something like a Donald Trump and potentially running mate of Marjorie Taylor Greene, you are going to have old Republicanism and new Republicanism going up against each other. And that will be the moment to see which side is now stronger in the GOP. The battle continues, I guess, for the soul of the Republican Party. We'll be watching for your reporting on this on Global National, of course, as always, Reggie. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you. You betcha. Reggie Cicchini, Washington Correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.